This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 19 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. The Human Genome Project was an incredibly bold effort by scientists to sequence our complete set of DNA, including all of our genes. Its successful completion in 2003 really transformed our understanding of biology, and the genomics revolution it catalyzed continues to impact almost all fields of science. Beyond the impact on basic research, the increased understanding of human sequence variation is poised to transform medicine and human health. To celebrate the successful completion of the Human Genome Project, the 108th U.S. Congress designated April 25th as National DNA Day. To celebrate DNA Day 2018, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Eric Green, Director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, or NHGRI, in Bethesda, Maryland. As director of NHGRI, he is responsible for leadership of the Institute's research portfolio and other initiatives. Eric discussed the state of genomics research, where we've been, and where we're going. But first, he talked about NHGRI and its mission in genomics and human health. So the National Human Genome Research Institute, or NHGRI, is one of 27 institutes and centers that make up the U.S.'s National Institutes of Health. Every one of those institutes and centers has its own history and story, and not surprisingly, so do we. So NHGRI dates back, really now, almost precisely 30 years. First, it was an office, Mm -hmm. and later it became a center. And then it eventually became an institute and was given its current name of National Human Genome Research Institute. Now, when the organization was created by the U.S. Congress, its pretty much single goal was to lead the NIH's effort in the Human Genome Project, which was going to be the largest U.S. effort in the Human Genome Project. And so we have an unusual history because institutes and centers usually don't get created for a highly focused kind of project the way the Human Genome Project was. But it was an unusual time and it was an unusual opportunity. So Congress said, this is what we want. And it was a good move because, in fact, NHGRI, even though we weren't called it back then, uh, quickly became a real leader of genomics in the world. Uh, its first director was Jim Watson. Oh, wow. Okay. Who, of course, was the co-discoverer of the double helical structure of DNA, Nobel right. Laureate. And he got the organization off the ground and got the Human Genome Project going. And then when Jim departed, Francis Collins was recruited from University of Michigan to take over. And Francis was really seen as a very strong leader, not only of the Institute, of course, but became in some ways sort of the field general uh, for the International Human Genome Project. But when Francis was recruited here, the story developed further because Francis said, sure, I'll come and run this part of the NIH. And its predominant mission, of course, at that time was to set out and achieve the goals of the Human Genome Project with the other international participants. 
But when he came here, he said the other thing he wanted to do was to build an on-campus genomics program. Here we refer to it as our intramural research program. Mm -hmm. And most of the institutes and centers at NIH have an intramural research component. But at the time, NHGRI did not. And mm -hmm. so what he wanted in coming here was to make this sort of a full-service institute where it was going to have, obviously, a major extramural, that was what the Human Genome Project was being funded by extramural means, but also to have an on-campus program. And so he came here and they built it from scratch. Wow. Uh, that's where my story began, because uh, right at the time that he was recruited here, he convinced me to come and be one of the earliest investigators uh, to join the intramural research program in and HGRI. when was that? Uh, so I was recruited here. He pretty much convinced me to come in 1992, 1993. Oh. Everybody arrived about 1993. I had a delay at a year for complicated reasons, um, but it all worked out. And so I, I joined it a little later than the, the very first people arrived, but I got here in 1994 as basically a tenure track investigator and, and was a part of the intramural program for quite a long time. Um, and about, oh, what was it, about you know eight years or so after I arrived, I actually became the director of the intramural program. And then after Francis uh, was appointed to be the NIH director by President Obama, he obviously had vacated the directorship of NHGRI, and I applied for and was eventually selected by Francis to be the new director. Wow. And so the institutes had three directors. Yeah. Well, that's not many. Uh, no, it's not many. And, we, you know, the previous two were particularly uh, prominent, Jim Watson and Francis <laughs> Collins, and I'm just doing my job here. And what is the role of the director? The director is um, sort of the conductor in some ways. You hardly do anything by yourself. You have a terrific staff. You know, the first thing to keep in mind is the Institute has two major components. It has an on-campus Department of Genomics is the best way to think of it, mm -hmm. which has its own director that reports to me. And it is uh, a remarkable and highly successful intramural program celebrating their 25th year now. And they have a faculty of, it depends exactly how you count investigators, but something on the other 25, 30 investigators doing everything from very basic genomics uh, to understanding structure, function of genomes, all the way through using genomics to understand the molecular basis of disease. But also we have clinical researchers that are working here in our clinical center, taking care of patients with genetic disorders, thinking about how to diagnose complicated genetic disorders and so forth. So it's really a full service genomics program. That represents oh, about 20% of the institute in terms of money. Okay. The majority of the institute, like 75%, goes out in grants and contracts to scientists around the world. There I have about oh, 30 or so doctoral level program directors who are involved in running consortium and overseeing all sorts of granting programs and training programs uh, related to genomics. The key thing, of course, about our institute, which is really a important part of the storyline, of course, is that the Institute was originally put into place by the U.S. Congress because of the Human Genome Project. And obviously, the rest is history. The project was completed quite successfully mm -hmm. 15 years ago. And the obvious question was at that time, well, now what? Yeah, now we're done. We're, right? You know, we're done. So, And of course, we were hardly done. <laughs> In fact, all That's we had was a genome sequence, which is a lot, and it was historic, but it was just the beginning. And so what's really gone on over the last 15 years, at first uh, under Francis's leadership, and then really for about the past eight years or so under my leadership, has been to morph the Institute, especially on our external side, our extramural side, from being highly focused around a single large and important 
project, the Human Genome Project, to a very diverse portfolio of activities that you know sort of lay out a very logical progression of what do you do having generated that first sequence of a human genome mm -hmm. to actually eventually using genomics to advance human health. And keep in mind, since we're part of the National Institutes of Health, right. that's a very important part of our mission. And since the Genome Project ended 15 years ago, there have been lots of advances in genomics. In fact, you could argue genomics has spread across all areas of science, even beyond biomedical science, right, all yeah. areas of science. But of course, we have to keep our focus on health. That's what we are here at the NIH doing. And so really, our institute's mission is to use the knowledge and tools and technologies of genomics to advance human health. And in the particular of the last eight years, has been a growing emphasis on how do you use genomic information as part of medical care. Mm -hmm. And you know, we refer to that as genomic medicine, and that's sort of a aspirational goal of the Institute. Feeding onto that, I know that the Institute's also famous for laying out these strategic plans, these kinds of roadmaps. And I think the last one was published in 2011. Correct. So you're due for a new one. And in Correct. fact, you you are embarking on a new strategic initiative, which is called the Forefront of Genomics, right? Well, it's in, embodied in our new mantra, which is the Forefront of Genomics. So in the process of kicking off a new round of strategic planning, just before we did that, we spent about a year, year and a half sort of pausing and, and thinking a lot about us as an organization. Because the other thing that's happened in the last 15 years, even at NIH, is that everybody's doing genomics. Right. You know, 15 years ago, when you said genomics, everybody thought, oh, that was all NHGRI. That was largely synonymous. What's happened, and I think we deserve some credit for it, is we have seen lots of genomics being taken up by other institutes and other agencies, and genomics is everywhere. Yeah. Um, and in fact, far more genomics research is being funded by other NIH institutes in aggregate compared to us. Uh, where once upon a time we were the sole funders. So we spent about a year, year and a half thinking about what is it that we do? What can we contribute? We're sort of everywhere and we're nowhere at the same time. We don't own a disease. We don't, <laughs> we're not responsible for disease, but responsible for this burgeoning, exciting new scientific approach and technologies. And after much sort of identity self-reflection, we came up with this mantra, the forefront of genomics, because what we do is we don't do all of genomics, but we're, we're sort of at the forefront and we, we are at the cutting edge. And then we advance and then we transfer, we disseminate that, and then we go to the new forefront. And you sort of look at the history, especially over the last 15 years, it really does reflect us always staying at the forefront. And then when others take it up, we move away from that and we try to find the next forefront. And there always is a new mm -hmm. challenge on the horizon. So, so the strategic plan that you mentioned is really an important one that also fits into the institute and actually the field of genomics storyline, because, you know, every field's a little bit different. And genomics, it's a young discipline. Keep in mind, I think a lot of times people need to be reminded that genomics has not been around as long as genetics or physics or cell biology or biochemistry. Right. I mean, the word genomics was first put into the scientific press in 1987. I mean, that was only 31 years ago. So it's still a relatively young discipline. But the other thing about the discipline of genomics is that it was sort of established at the same exact time as the Human Genome Project. And the thing about the Human Genome Project is that it was an audacious goal with no idea how we were going to accomplish <laughs> it. And so the field of genomics and the, the scientists involved in genomics immediately got into this cultural um, habit of just strategic planning because 
I was there. I was there on day one of the genome project. We really didn't know how we were going to wow. map the human genome, let alone actually sequence it. But one thing we knew is that there was a lot of interest. It was highly collaborative, and it was really effective to get people together, strategize, and come up with new ideas, and then pursue them, but then regroup every handful of months, or at least every year or two or three, and say, all right, what worked, what didn't work, and what new opportunities are that we could do it different? Mm -hmm. And so the Human Genome Project was critically guided by sort of a series of overlapping strategic plans of what's next, what should we do it, what's the blueprint for getting us to the goals of the Genome Project? And there were three in particular that were published along the way. And so when the Genome Project was about to end, our institute recognized that, wow, Strategic planning was really effective. It was really important for the field of genomics. We need to do this as an institute, in mm -hmm. part to answer the question, what next? What right. next for the institute? And so we arranged it uh, strategically, if you want to <laughs> use that word, that literally the day the Genome Project ended, which is now almost precisely 15 years ago, we had completed about a couple year process of strategic planning, engaging the community, really thinking critically through what were we going to do having completed the Human Genome Project and published the strategic plan, came out the day the Genome Project ended. And it was really important for the field. It was important for our, our grantees. It was important for us mm -hmm. to sort of have it laid out. And the good news is it was well-received. The not-so-good news was that it was so well-received, we actually were quite effective at following it, which meant it wasn't <laughs> going to last forever because it gets dated. And so sure enough, we realized these are not timeless. If they're good strategic plans, they tell you how to make progress. Right. And uh, the 2003 plan was quite effective at making progress or, or foreshadowing how to make progress. And so it didn't even last a full decade. And, wow. and that's why we then kicked off another round of strategic planning, delivered our latest strategic plan in 2011. Which seems like it was just yesterday, but crazily enough, it's not yesterday. It was now seven years. Yeah. And so, a lot has happened in seven years. You know, and a lot has happened in seven years. And so really the key thing for our internal thinking, we knew eventually we were going to have to put out a new strategic plan. But it was, and it's actually the 2011 one, if you read it, it's still holding up pretty well. A couple areas maybe are not mentioned that are really new developments. But by and large, it's a very good framework for almost everything we're doing as an institute. I think every really even broader than just our institute. But here was the logical progression that brought us to realize we needed to get going, is that a strategic plan that is published in a journal like Nature in 2011 is actually gets written in 2010, because right. it's a long process of a lot of approvals and review and getting into press. And here we are, we argue that genomics is the hottest thing around, it's fast moving, it's cutting edge, it's incredibly exciting and ever changing. I just didn't feel we could credibly go into the next decade and still be operating on a strategic plan that had basically been written over a decade ago. Because right. by 2020, you know, a strategic plan in 2010 is a decade or more old. Yeah. And then the other little nuance is that to do a good job of strategic planning, it takes about two plus years. Wow. So to do it really well and to really engage. And you know what? What we're really recognizing in this round of strategic planning is that the communities, and that's plural, are more plentiful and they're deeper and they're more sophisticated. So to really engage all the communities we want to engage, you can't do it in a year and you to get everything done. So it really requires two plus years. So who are your stakeholders that you're reaching out to for? Well, think about it. I mean, you know, once upon a time, it was just folks thinking about how do you map genomes? How do you sequence genomes? How do you interpret all that data? You know, now all of a sudden, well, it's the whole communities of people who study human disease. And right. then all of a sudden, it's, wait a second, we're implementing this in the clinic. It's it's healthcare professionals. Oh, and it's not just doctors, of course. Then you got to move to the patients. And then all of a sudden, you have patient, and then you have communities. And you have people, wow, all, all of a sudden, genomics is affecting everyday life. There's not just one community. There's many communities and with different attitudes, different values. 
And then all of a sudden, you really have to think about once you've touched that medical ecosystem, you know, all of a sudden you're dealing with payers, yeah. you're dealing with regulators, you're dealing with educators. And so when we look across the sets of communities, it's it's much more diverse than it ever has been. So we had to get going. You yeah. know, we want to put something out in 2020. And so that's our plan to actually get it published in 2020. Um, there is a very convenient odometer moment, milestone, if you will, because October 1 of 2020 will be the 30th anniversary uh-huh. of the launch of the Human Genome Project. And that just seemed like too good of a, a moment in yeah, time. Can't let so that we're going to try to sort of get published right around that time. But to really get everything ready for that really required us kicking this off uh, uh, this year. I noticed that, uh, and maybe it ties into the fact that, you know, you can't do everything. There are many people that are funding genomics. So you are emphasizing certain things yeah. in strategic plan and de-emphasizing others. So what kinds of things are you emphasizing? Are these the things that no one else can do, for example? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's actually, as we talk about the strategic planning process, I am often asked to sort of unpack that question right. because every time we do strategic planning, there's lots of questions. What's in scope? What's out of scope? What Are you doing it for the field? You're just doing it for NHGRI? And that's really hard. What I can tell you is we cannot do justice to do strategic planning across all things that touch genomics. Even in biomedicine, we can't do it all. And some people will be surprised that there'll be certain areas we're just not going to touch. And in particular, they'll be surprised because there are areas that maybe five years ago or even two years ago or even now we're heavily involved in. Mm -hmm. But we see ourselves moving away from it. I'll give you a couple examples of things that are out of scope, not because we don't respect them. Actually, we're putting them out of scope because they're so important others are leading them. One is cancer. I mean, here Mm -hmm. we were extensively involved in cancer genomics, but we're really moving away from it in part because the National Cancer Institute is showing such effective leadership in that. And cancer is a big problem and they need a big institute and they need dedicated experts and they need to do their own strategic planning. And Mm -hmm. so you know, we really won't deal with cancer genomics per se. Another area that we won't do, even though we stimulated the area, is um, microbial genomics. And microbiome Microbiome. Again, not because we don't respect it, but because it's been so rapidly taken up by multiple other institutes, some of which have huge investments now in microbiome work, that we couldn't do it justice. Now, it's not to say that some of the things we develop and some of the computational and technology, DNA sequencing technologies, they may feed into those areas. But those areas really need their own dedicated strategic planning. So that's an example of stuff that we're sort of ceding to others to do the strategic planning. Then there's areas that we couldn't claim that we can lead exclusively the strategic plan in the area because it's bigger than us, but we're still very heavily involved. And the two areas that come immediately to mind in what I call these intermediate areas are the genomic basis of rare and common diseases and then computational genomics and data science. Now, so what does that mean? That means we will certainly have extensive amounts of strategic planning in both of those areas, but we will heavily engage other NIH institutes to work with us during that strategic planning and to collaborate with us as they're doing now. I mean, if you actually look at what NHGRI is doing now in studying rare and common diseases, we're doing this in partnership already with several NIH institutes and that list will grow. Mm-hmm. And so that'll be in scope, but we we make no claims that we'll be even the major funder of activities in those areas because it's so much bigger than us, both of those areas. Yeah. And then there'll be mainstream areas. These are areas that um, historically NHGRI has been 
quite involved in. And in particular, these are areas I often refer to as sort of disease agnostic. If it is a disease associated with it, oftentimes there's an NIH institute ready to sort of take on that responsibility. But if it's just pure genomics, this is what we're looked to for not only leading, uh, but actually doing most of it. And so technology development, mm-hmm. genome structure function, epigenomics, um, you know, how the genome interacts with the environment, ethical, legal, social implications of genomics. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. the sort of, you know, that's sort of our, our bread and butter. That's just sort of these classic areas. And obviously thinking a lot about workforce. How do we train the next generation of genome scientists? We have to really focus on training. And then, you know, and what really has represented a huge growth area for us and will continue to be is genomic medicine implementation. You know, that gets tricky because some of that's implemented in a very disease-specific way, but but there's a lot of challenges in front of us that um, doesn't align with individual diseases. I mean, I sometimes joke that, you know, the genome's not organized around disease areas. It's not like this chromosome <laughs> yeah. is the kidney disease or even genes and pathways. And so, and as you encounter genomic variants, they don't have a little flag on them and say, oh, this is a cardiac yeah. relevant. I'm variant. hypertension. Right. I'm yeah. a hypertension. So it's not that way. So w- that's why we are leading major efforts to figure out what are the clinically relevant variants. Because if you're going to do this on a large scale basis, you have to go into it not knowing what disease it's going to align with. So And then there's a whole lot of operational aspects of genomic medicine that will eventually bring on other partners, but we've got to lead. You know, I mean, there's lots of very hard problems of integrating genomic information into electronic medical records, clinical decision support tools, lots of things along those lines. So we'll, you know, that'll be a big part of our mainstream effort. And it really has represented one of the biggest increase areas for us over the last eight Mm -hmm. years. So in terms of the education component, I hear this a lot when I interview people, you know, finding in particular, finding students that have the right mix of biology background and computational skills seems to be really challenging to find. So what are your thoughts about how do we have to educate students, you know, younger? Do we have to go into grade schools and start educating about genomics? So we're thinking about all of these things. Um, I, I think genomic literacy in general, is one of the huge um, challenges we need to address. I'm, I guarantee it will be part of this strategic planning process. You gave the example of how are, do we, how are we going to train the genomics professionals, and I think that's really important, but even that has many subcategories mm-hmm. under it. I think about the future healthcare professionals, whether they be nurses or physicians, pharmacists, genetic counselors, physician assistants. There's going to have to be elevated literacy around genomics for all of them. They're not going to be geneticists per se or genomicists, but that's just going to be part of everyday healthcare. So we need to think about them. Then we need to think about who are going to be our leading genomic scientists. And and that's a set of challenges. What's going to be the optimal training for a genomic scientist? But then, of course, we need to think about what about just the conventional biomedical researcher, not a genomics specialist? They're going to need to have some minimal yeah. understanding competency, not only in genomics, but in data science. We've got to think about all of that. And if that's not enough, then we got to take a step back and say, wait a second, if genomics is going to become routine part of medicine, that means genomics is going to be spoken with patients. Yeah. Are patients going to understand all the things about genomics? So we, they, we need to sort of raise everybody's boat. And I think just general public genomic literacy is going to be a very important priority. And, and we've already been working on this and, and we are doing a lot and we have been doing a lot. But you know, I can just tell you, if you go out and talk to people out in the community, uh, not necessarily a scientist, 
one of the intimidating aspects of genomics is just understanding the fundamental word. Yeah. And also, I think part of that is there's this huge rise in consumer-based genomics. Right. And that, so basically, that means that every consumer is going to have to be aware of genomics. And, yeah. and, and that's actually a great point, is that when I talk about genomic literacy for patients, sure, because that's my health focus, but you take a step back and say, even beyond being a patient and part of routine health, it's becoming part of everyday life. People who are interested in ancestry, they're learning a lot about genomics as they get into genomics-based ancestry testing. Uh, they go and they look at the foods. There's all sorts of issues around using genomics and genetics for our food supply. Right. Um, there's issue, you know, if they want to watch a detective show, they're going to hear about it in forensics. I mean, it just keeps going on and on. It's becoming part of everyday life. Right. And, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this is in celebration of National DNA Day. What does DNA Day mean for you? What's the significance of it? Well, the historic significance, of course, is this is actually was a congressional act that I think as a tribute to the success of the Human Genome Project and the recognition that this was a historic milestone. For us, we use it as an opportunity to once a year inform and once a year engage. You know, 15 years ago, it was established because it was this remarkable accomplishment of completing the Human Genome Project actually sooner than we ever anticipated. And so, yeah, it is good to sort of pause every once in a while and say, just recognize that, don't take this for granted. This was, we didn't always have this. Yeah. That's so right. I think it's, it's one of many things, but I do think, again, the other reason for National DNA to at least collect these storylines is, is just to remind people that this wasn't all automatic. And also, I think when you tell that story and you point out how fast this stuff has all happened, and then you turn around and you say, and the aspirational goal is to change the practice of medicine or to really understand all these things. And it can be done quicker than we ever anticipated. So I think hearing that even us wise owls were shocked at how quick all this stuff happened can be used in an inspirational way to say, even what you're working on now as a graduate student, you may think it's just a hugely complicated problem. But we also thought sequencing the human genome was hugely complicated, and, and we did it. So it does serve to inspire sometimes, if you tell the story right. Tying into that last thing you just mentioned, my, my last question for you is, what are the advances, like looking at the five, 10-year window in the future, what are the advances, the technologies that you think are really going to be transformative even more than genomics has already been transformative? As always, it's a crystal ball projection, and, and there's probably lots I could make. I'll give you one at a more basic science side, and then I'll give you one more at a more clinical side. And I don't know if it's a five-year, 10-year window. I give up trying to predict timescales. But on the basic science side, I think our abilities to study individual cells at every omic level possible, but starting just with genomics, is going to just give us a whole new view of the complexity of biology. I mean, so much of biology even though we have great insights about how does the kidney work and how does the liver work and how does the brain work and how's the mouth, et cetera, et cetera. But most of what we're looking at is a blend of many different cells. So different, the human cell atlas, for example. Is as an example, but then not even just the atlas, but being able to take a tissue and be able to perturb it in different ways and study the different types of cells doing different things or, or look at different disease processes. So I just think we're going to our view of the complexity of biology is going to explode when we start to look at things cell by cell and have the technologies to do that. So I think on the basic science side, that's where the, and of course, the immediate thing you could ask me is, oh my gosh, that'll be a tremendous amount of data. And you're absolutely right. <laughs> and so I, the other aspect of that explosion is going to be quantum leaps in how we assimilate and analyze amounts of data that 
are just going to just be mind boggling. So, so artificial I, intelligence is going it, to be. Yes, or whatever even is beyond that. I mean, it's, it's just so much of biology is going to be a data science endeavor. It's just, and, and high technology stuff. And in the days of people sitting at benches most of their lives, pipetting, you know, into individual test tubes is just going to be long gone. There'll be some of that, but, but there'll be a lot of just really, immense amounts of data being generated at, at micro levels of cellular ce cells and cell networks. It's just going to be just a whole different world, I think, five, 10 years from now. Wow. Then on the clinical side, it's also going to have a theme of high data. You know, I just think we're going to enter a phase where obviously when, I think there's going to be a lot of genomic information about individual patients and figuring out how to use that. But it's also going to not just be genomic data that's going to be the pivotal thing. I think it's going to be the genomic data coupled with much better handle on electronic health record data, which, you know, 15 years ago was almost non-existent. Now is much more existent, although it's not still not easy to use, but that's, I think, going to change a lot. Um, and then on top of it are going to be types of data that are going to be basically captured by the next, I think, one of the next revolutions in technology, which is going to be mobile sensors that are going to measure all sorts of things about our physiology. And I think the earliest examples of are, you know, Fitbits and very right. cute apps that we have on our smartphones. But I'm talking about real research grade at first and then eventually clinical grade mobile health devices. And I think it's going to be that interplay of genomic information coupled with real-time physiologic data coupled with lots of data about everything about your healthcare, everything about, you know, the knowledge about you and having these incredibly data-intensive opportunities I think is going to also be transformative in medicine. That's terrific. Uh, Eric, thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics podcast. Uh, it's amazing. You have an amazing amount of experience, and I think people are really going to enjoy what you have to say. Well, it's been a pleasure, and, and thanks to Illumina for doing this. I think all of these uh, education efforts and outreach efforts are really important uh, for the advances that we're going to be seeing in genomics in the coming years. Wow. Who could have imagined just 15 years after the Human Genome Project that today, genomics would play such an important role in almost every aspect of our lives. In the future, Eric believes that genomics is going to fundamentally change biomedical research and medicine. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Karis Eng, Professor and Chair of Cancer Genomic Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic we'll be discussing multidisciplinary approaches to identify and characterize genes that cause susceptibility to inherited cancer syndromes here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>